That's all. That's it. And in terms of the meditation, you might recall quite a long, quite a long time ago, or an extremely short time ago, depending on how your view is, we began with the loving-kindness practice of raising the four questions. You know, really all focusing or starting with of just a vision, a vision quest, so to speak, of your own sense of flourishing. What, what is your vision? Of what's a good life? What's a good life? What's a life you'd love to live? And what is the happiness, a sense of fulfillment you'd love to experience? And so it might be of interest, insofar as you can remember what came to mind eight weeks ago, and then return to the same questions this morning, and just, just see how that evolves, each of them, the vision itself, what you'd love to receive from the, those around you, kind of transformations you'd love to see within yourself, and then what you'd love to offer to the world. Right? They're good questions. But it's good, again, to see them evolve, to see them grow, mature, deepen, as our own understanding matures. And then that's almost like a little index of where you are in your spiritual practice. So if we, I think there were a bunch of five-year-olds, kindergartens here, in the, in the, I think yesterday morning. So if you ask them, it'd be really, it could be actually a lot of fun. You know, what's your vision? Wouldn't that be a fun question to ask little kids? What's your vision of what would make you really happy? A puppy. <laughs> or who knows what, you know? But something that a five-year-old would come up with, you know? And it's probably going to be, I would love to know what they like, you know? And then what would you love to receive from the world? Two puppies. <laughs> How would you love to change? I want to have a puppy. <laughs> what would you live, like to give back to the world? I left a hoga puggy puppy. You know, whatever it is. And I'm just kidding, of course. But to see how that would shift from a five-year-old to a ten-year-old, and how it shifts from eight weeks ago to today, you know, I think very worthwhile. So let's have one session. One session. Love and kindness for ourselves and those around us. The forecast is so different with respect to one's aspirations, whether they're really primarily about the hedonic as opposed to the eudaimonic. And that is, if insofar as one is really oriented towards hedonic well being, I think sooner or later there must come a time in one's life, at least in many lives, in which you have this kind of growing sense the best is already past. The really good times have passed. And now it's kind of downhill. I've seen this happen among elderly, where they're just not seeing anything good coming up. It's just going to be worse. It's now worse than it was before. And all I have to look forward to is worse. And then it's dead. And so that's kind of bleak. That's kind of like life on, with the model of a Greek tragedy. You kind of, from the time you're born, you know it's not going to turn out well. You, you just see all the marks are there, all the signs are there. You'll have some high points, but then there just has to come some point, unless you just die a sudden accident, you know, like an injury, uh, an accidental death, where you just, I see I'm on the downslope now. Now it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Whereas, I think, if you re I think you, many of you have, perhaps all of you have, reflected deeply on the pursuit of eudaimonia, of genuine happiness. And there, you can always have the sense the best is yet to come. 
and it's not silly. And I mean always you can have that sense. Like this, I think 86-year-old nun, I mean she was old. She was a lot older than anybody here in this room. And there she was, the end of her life, you know, she's all wrinkly and old and like that. And there she has Tara in her presence all the time. Tara implicitly telling her the best is yet to come. So I feel that way, you know, 62 years old. I really feel just my life has just been warming up, kind of getting, getting really ready for the really good part. No regrets, no, no major regrets about what's gone by. There's no big disappointment, but feeling, oh boy, best is yet to come. You know? And I very much hope that when I'm, if I have the good fortune to be dying a nice leisurely death without a lot of pain, I'll have that same sense. It says, oh boy, the final toboggan run, the final, the final voyage. Oh, best is yet to come. Right? So as you can tell from the many guided meditations we've had in the Four Immeasurables, I'm really not an advocate of aspiring for things that are flat out impossible. Because I think there's so many things that are possible that are worth aspiring for then why go into the realm of impossibility? The realm of possibility is so vast. You know, then why go into that vacuous realm of impossibility and then aspire for that? Like, what was wrong with reality? You got the realm of actuality, you have the realm of possibility, and then you have the realm of impossibility. So I think the first two are big enough to encompass all of our aspirations. That's my sense. And so, do you remember that, that song from a long time ago, to dream the impossible dream? I don't want to do that. But I have a variation on that. To dream the implausible dream. <laughs> implausible, unlikely. To dream the implausible dream. <laughs> like, you know, that all sentient beings may achieve enlightenment. But if we give ourselves enough time, whether it's to achieve shamatha, vipassana, whatever it may be, bodhicitta, spontaneous, uncontrived, absolutely authentic bodhicitta, to become a bodhisattva, that's pretty implausible. But man, is that worth aspiring for. Really worth aspiring for. And one life may not be long enough. So what? So what? One car, when I got my first car when I was 19, one car wasn't good enough either. I'm 62, that's a long time. I mean, I could have kept that one car, but... No, car, I moved on, I went off to India, my dad took my car back, and so didn't, never saw that car again. But then, years and years and years later, I got another car. That car was totaled, sandwiched, <laughs> crunched between two cars. Like a little, it was a little Honda Civic, and it was like an accordion, went <laughs> You know? So, bye-bye Honda Civic, got another car. That was a real lemon, that was a used car. Terrible car. Got rid of that one. Then got another car, another used car. Oh, that was a terrible car. That was really worse. We sold it for scrap iron. It was worth a big paperweight. That's what it was worth. Yeah, sold it for $1,000 because that's what it was worth. Next car was a pretty good car. That was car. That one got crunched. Somebody else drove it. <laughs> Finished. The next car, that's the car I still have. That's good. The little car hasn't been driven much because I do most of my traveling around in airplanes. But you know, we don't weep when you get a new car. 
Because one car, the first car you ever had, was probably not the one you'd keep for your whole life because you outgrow it, it gets damaged, it gets totaled or what have you, you get a new car. So, this is your vehicle. If you can't do everything with one car, you get a new car. Get a better model. <laughs> Upgrade. <laughs> oh, Lasso, I've quit rambling. Especially pertaining to the four measurables, we'll have this, well, we won't have anything at all because we're not going to have that much time this afternoon. Godot's rolling. Off to Godot. Uh, I'd like to preface this question by saying this is not a question about what's the least I have to do, but what do I have to do? Mm -hmm. Is there a difference between what the least you have to do and, the, and what you have to do? Is there a difference between those two? I think so. You think so? Yeah. What, what do I... But well, if you have to do it, then... In my mind, it's always the same. The least you have to do is what you have to do. If you, if you want to do more, then that's what you can do. But go ahead. We can define those in different ways. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm always looking for the least. When, you know, when they give, like in so many classic Buddhist texts, they say, okay, if you're a person of superior faculties, here's how it will turn out. And if you're medium faculties, and if you're low faculties. And then I always look, and what if you're retarded faculties? I'm, kind of, I'm going there. Okay. Yeah, I'm going there. I'm going well, to bottom, bottom, that bottom of the heap. Yeah. And then what, if you have incredibly retarded faculties, what's the least you can do to achieve enlightenment? And then let me at it. <laughs> well, let's, let's so this is, what the, this is what the sharp Vajra Tantra says, you know? If you're really retarded and you want to do the very least, just scrimp by with a D minus and still achieve great transference rainbow body. I'm going to go for the bare minimum. Yeah, but go ahead. Now we're back to you. Okay. Well, let's work off that plane. Um, I, can, I can see the obvious uh, way that we can practice the four measurables out, out in the world. Quite so, yeah. Um, but I've become quite attached to the level of concentration. The, the level of? Concentration that I've achieved over the last eight weeks. Oh, that's a bad idea because you're going to lose it. This is what my question is. Oh, so, yeah, there's no question. You will lose it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm pulling your leg. Go ahead. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah, can I have my money back, please? <laughs> yes, you have all the money that I have from you. <laughs> Would you like twice as much? <laughs> so, so what do I have to do? Uh, is it four hours, six hours on the cushion? Um, what do I have to do on a daily basis to maintain? I guess I have this, this idea of I would love to achieve stage four outside so that when I came back into a situ situ situation like this, mm -hmm. I had that, that base to work from. Yeah, that's a very good question. <coughs> and where it really focuses in on is what are you doing between sessions? Because in these eight weeks, I have a lot of confidence that you know how to do the practices. And you've also benefited from the practices, and that's where the inspiration comes from. You know, Dharma talks come and go. You hear, hear a really good one, and then you can't remember what was said a week later, even though it was really, really fantastic. You know, if you ask, you know, think of the greatest Dharma talks you've ever heard from any Lama in your life, and think how much did you remember a, year, you know, a week later of what did he actually say? Can you write a report? Give me a synopsis now, not from your notes you took then. No, what you've actually you know, Dharma talks come and go, but your own experience, that has left its real deep imprint, right? So you know how to do the practices, you know the methods, the techniques, um, but come back to a, to a metaphor I think is very, very close, and that's climbing up a steep, a steep hill, like the side of a mountain that's covered with scree, and many people won't know the word scree, I didn't until some years ago, but that's that loose gravel 
that loose gravel, that rock that uh, often accumulates on the side of a, like a granite mountain. And it can, be a, it can be a foot, two, three feet thick. So as you're climbing up this steep, steep mountain, this grade, you put one foot in front of the other and you go, you go up two feet and then you slide back one foot. And then you go up two feet and you slide back one foot because it's just always, there's no real traction, right? Because it's always sliding down. But if, you, if it's a 10,000 foot peak and you're going up two feet and sliding back one and going up two feet and sliding back one, you will get there. You will get there. It just, it's not going to be easy, but two to one, so it's going to take you longer than you just trot up. Uh, whereas if the scree is so loose, so loose, that you go up one and you slide back one or one and a half, and one and one and a half, then there you are. Was it Prometheus? Wasn't that the one, the rolling the stone up and down? Sisyphus. Sisyphus. Thank you. Sisyphus is stone, of course, yeah. Uh, then you're going to be Sisyphus rolling a stone and then just getting crushed by the stone. And so then it doesn't matter how much you practice, it's always going to be ro rolling down and, cr and crushing you. And so what I'm getting at here, and it's a very serious issue, and serious not in a, like grim, but just like this is really crucial, and that is what's the level, level of your awareness between sessions. You know? And that's why this whole point uh, of just being gently relentless, happily, joyfully relentless, you know, joyfully relentless, enthusiastically relentless, about not falling into the old crack of rumination. Because that's, that's, the, that's the acid that just you know, erodes a hole right into the pot of your shamatha, is that mind. And it's not only that it's eroding while it's happening, but it's the content, the content of, a, of the rumination also that will rust right into, into your meditation sessions, the content of it. Resentful about this, hoping about this, anxious about that, grasping, fearing, hope, and all that kind of stuff. It's not just that it's a waste of time, but it carries right over, like a viral disease, right into your meditation. And so the more that, I, it, the image that I, I've shared with a number of people, it's a silly one, it's a trivial one, but if you fill a bathtub with water, it doesn't fill up from one end uh, faster than the other end. As you know, it just, it just fills up evenly. And so for, the, for, the, for your 16, 18 hours a day that you're awake, if you can try to fill that up so that it's mindful throughout the whole course of the day, and then it's even. It's even. So you're not, of course, always attending to your breath or to your mind or your awareness, but when you're engaged in a conversation, for example, you're, you're a businessman, you engage in a conversation. You're giving the other person your whole attention. You're in samadhi on that person. Right? And if you're in samadhi on that person, not just thinking, I want this person to do that. I hope this person signs a contract. I hope this person gives me a lot of profit. I hope you, you're good. I hope you're honest and so forth. Ha, 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 ha. All of this business of I-it relationship. But even in a business relationship, there's, there's nothing in reality that compels us to be in an I-it relationship. Not with a policeman that pulls us over to a ticket, give us a ticket because we're speeding. We don't like that, but we don't have to treat him like an it. He's just doing his job, and we were speeding, probably, right? So he's a guy making a, making a living, you know? But um, my wife got pulled over when I was in the passenger seat. My wife got pulled over for speeding. She actually was on the freeway and zoomed right by, right by a cop. She, she zipped past him a police car, a patrol car. She's got a lot of chutzpah, my wife. <laughs> and she just zipped right by him. He's in the fast lane and you <laughs> What part of that didn't you see? <laughs> you know? And so of course he pulled her over. 
And uh, he said, you know, to pass a police car? <laughs> That's not, not too smart. <laughs> Something like that. He said, you know, you really shouldn't do that. That's not really good. And she was just so sweet. She's just so sweet. And the, and the policeman then turned over to me and said, why didn't you make her stop that? <laughs> I, I don't control her. You know? But she was so sweet. She was so nice. He didn't give her a, a, a ticket. You know? So I'm learning from her. I can't be nearly as sweet as she is. But that I'm, I'm rambling, of course. But whoever it is, I mean, I was taking one example where we're not likely to enter into a really IU relationship. Like, may you be well and happy and I'm really grateful for whatever you're giving me right now, and, and so forth. Not so easy, right? But even there, he's not doing anything illegal. He's kind of you know, giving you something for doing illegal. But there's no relationship, no relationship that requires that we respond in an I-it fashion. So to bring that full attention there, the shamatha, and if that shamatha can be infused with any of the four measurables, you'll make an impression. And I'm, I'm not saying, wow, he was impressive. I'm saying you'll make an impression. It will have an impact. It may be something below the threshold of consciousness for the person you're engaging with, but they'll sense something like that, and she's becoming something of a legend, at least in my mind, but that woman, probably about 30 years old, who sold stationery, office supplies at Stanford Bookstore. That's what she was doing. She, I, 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 don't know that, I don't know that ever she really ever engaged in an I-it relationship, with the people coming up with the stuff that they wanted to purchase, which is incredibly easy to do. But I noticed immediately, she made an impression on me that, wow, I'm not just a customer. She's actually relating to me as a human being. And I, it was really quite striking, you know? And so there she was, one of the most mundane jobs around, selling pencils, paper, and so forth. But she turned it into a Dharma practice. And I have no idea whether she's Christian, Buddhist, or just simply a very lovely, warm, and att attentive person. But if you fill the day, and that's really the core teaching. Fill the day with that presence of mindfulness that's relaxed, that's stable, that's clear. So there's your vessel, a nice clean vessel. Because that's what shamat is all about. It's making your mind, your body-mind, a suitable vessel for all of the immense riches of the Dharma that come beyond it. Bodhicitta, Vipassana, etc., all of, everything else. But it's saying, you know, when you come to the, the great palace of the Buddha Dharma and you're coming as a beggar, because that's what His Holiness told me I was when I first met with him. Yeah, the first time I met. And I was concerned about pride, about my getting a greater understanding, developing virtue, and then feeling that I'm superior to other people. You know, that was my concern. That was my first question to him. How do I deal with this? Because I want to just grow, grow, grow in wisdom and understanding and insight and grow in compassion and all of these virtues. But then how do I avoid the sense that I'm better than other people? When, when that actually has happened, how do I do that? Because actually you do have greater wisdom than some other people, and you do have greater compassion than some other people. So how do, if, since it's realistic, then how do you avoid being realistic? And that's feeling superior. Because I feel if you feel superior, you're a jerk. So that was my, that was my koan that I presented to His Holiness. And, um, and he said, uh, if you come to come to a home because you're a beggar, you have no food. And he asked them, can you, do you have any spare scraps? Do you have anything you can share? I don't have any money or I have very little. Anything, and, and they invite you in. Not, they don't just give you a you know, stale loaf of bread or some leftovers. 
uh, they actually invite you in because they're just about to sit down to a sumptuous meal. You know? And they invite you in as if you're a family member. And they sit down and they serve you. And they serve you and they serve you the best meal they have and the, the best food they have in the house. You know, that's for their most eminent guests. And they serve you until you can't eat anymore, until you're just, whoa, you're totally full. He said, when you've finished your meal, do you feel pride? You feel arrogant, proud of yourself, for having eaten all that food? I said, no, of course not. He said, well, you're the beggar. He's exactly right. Exactly right. I had essentially nothing to give at all. Really nothing to give. And yet for years and years and years, just sitting down at their banquet table, So the notion of pride is silly. It's not, it's not, not, only near, not, not only not realistic, it's just silly. Just silly, crazy. So just fill your life. You know, let your, your mind be a suitable vessel. And that's where the, that was where that tangent came from, is when you come to receive, when you're the, the beggar and you got a bowl, and you're asking, well, do you have a scrap? And they say, no, we don't have a scrap. We're going to give you a sumptuous meal. Don't bring a dirty bowl. Don't bring one with holes in it. Don't turn it upside down. Don't splash it all over the place. Give a nice clean bowl that's upright. And with respect, receive the food. And that's your bowl is shamata mind that's been trained in relaxation, stability, and clarity. Because to have it all filled with bacteria and cockroaches and lice and bedbugs and fleas and spiders of rumination and say, please pour in the nectar of dharma. You mean in that bowl? In that bowl? Can't you wash it out first? Because what I'm going to put in there, what I'm going to convey, what I'm going to share with you is ambrosia. I mean, it's really priceless ambrosia and it will taste incredibly good. But if you put it into that bowl, I'm not sure how it's good it's going to taste. Ambrosia mixed with cockroaches and lice? Maybe not so much. And then you'll say, this isn't, good, this isn't good ambrosia. I don't like this ambrosia. I don't like galupa ambrosia. I want nyingma ambrosia. And then you get nyingma. Oh, but I don't like this either. It has lice and, and cockroaches in it. How about kagupa? Ah, kag, milarepa. I want some milarepa ambrosia. But it has cockroaches in it. That really stinks. All of your ambrosia has cockroaches in it. So bring a, bring a pure bowl to every person you encounter and then fill it as much as you can with four measurements. Then no regret. No regret. Yeah? Oh, can, yeah. I com can I complement a little bit what he, about his question? I didn't understand anything you said except for his question, but the answer is yes. <laughs> can I say something about his question? Of course, yeah. I would suggest him that if he wants to keep a good level of concentration in his daily life, because everything is very distracting, mm -hmm. I would say personally that practicing four hours a day and having one day of the week for your own retreat is very difficult, but it's doable. Mm -hmm. And you can orient all the activities of your life to support your practice. Mm -hmm. And instead of having so many appointments and distractions, mm -hmm. like organize them around your practice and give it, give it to your practice the 
like the like is the most important like the meeting with yourself mm -hmm. and you are not going to sacrifice it for going to the movies or other things that you can do also mm -hmm. there's some really good movies though <laughs> occasionally a really good movie comes along that's really inspiring i've seen a few yeah but if you have a schedule for your dharma practice and yep. you respect it yep uh, it makes a change then if it's just a hobby and then you put it after you have free time after mm -hmm. all your other mundane yep. activities yep. so if he really wants to have a stage four it requires some effort and it's not just about being mindful all day but it requires practicing a lot in the cushion and yeah i was i, your, your I assume that went, went without saying i think it did <laughs> but it's a good point four hours but again if the four hours is then eroded if, if the four hour, if you're going up four hours and then you're falling back 12 then yeah, that's you're true. You're right back to uh, Sisyphus. So, sure, all true. All true. For example, Tony. Tony is a very good example for us because he wakes up at 4 a.m. and meditates four hours stretch. And then he goes all day doing Dharma and teaching and helping others. Mm -hmm. And you can see his level of concentration and attention is mm -hmm. great. It's very inspiring. Uh huh. Yep, he is a wonderful teacher. Very good. Uh, Maria, go ahead. If there, yep, certainly a bit of time. Hello. Okay. Hello. Uh, my question is about full enlightenment. This ex full, yeah. full enlightenment. Yeah. This expression comes a lot in Buddhist texts. It does, yeah. And sometimes it gives us the impression that because we are re we reach the highest possible. Uh, human consciousness, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems that if w what, how can we achieve full enlightenment and don't be stagnant? Because I, I think the idea that we're always evolving and we are, you know, something more to learn. Sure. And I, I wonder if you could explain what does full enlightenment actually means? Yeah. Because sure. If the Buddha nature was like a blank sheet of paper or an empty an empty pot, then there would be always more compassion, almost more, always more wisdom, always more knowledge, always more skills and so forth to put into the pot. You could always get more. And so in a developmental way, then we can think, well, couldn't you develop deeper compassion? Couldn't you develop greater enthusiasm? Greater, greater, greater. So developmental, it looked like it really could be an endless story of it just an ongoing evolution to greater and greater and greater, and they could maybe never end. Uh, certainly sounds quite reasonable, rational. But I think in this regard, the discovery model is a bit more illuminating, or more, yeah, more illuminating. And that is in the classic Buddhism, so just classic Mahayana, but Vajrayana is as well. Uh, we speak of obscurations. So the Buddha nature is there, primordial purity, non-local, beyond time, right? Beyond space. Um, beyond expansion or contraction, beyond becoming polluted or becoming unpolluted, beyond all of that, para para, para para, para gati, para samgati, bodhisoha, totally beyond, beyond beyond, bodhi, that is awakening. And so, but although that is our core, it's obscured by, for example, they're called klesha avarana, the obscurations of klesha. So just ordinary delusion, craving, hostility, and all the derivatives. And that obscures it. So even though it's there, 
then we act sometimes in very harmful ways, greedy ways, and so forth and so on, and we're not able to experience what's already there. So the practice of Dharma then unveils, it removes these veils of klesha, klesha obscurations. And then beyond that, if you want to become Buddha, a samyak sambuddha, a perfectly awakened being, completely samyak sambodhi, authentically and perfectly awakened, then there's another whole dimension of obscurations. They're called nyaya avarana, or cognitive obscurations. And these obscurations are extremely subtle. These are what prevent your, your awareness, your Buddha nature, your pristine awareness, from being completely unveiled, completely limitless, completely without boundary, without border, without any, anything that encompasses it at all. And so that's very much part of the Bodhisattva path. It's part of the Vajrayana path. Are removing that. Now, when you remove that, that which was already there is infinite. It's infinite. Two times infinity equals infinity. Infinity times infinity equals infinity. One half of infinity equals infinity. It's one of those things, whatever you do with it. Infinity plus 13, infinity. Mm. You do anything you like with infinity, but it's, just, it's infinity. Because uh, you can't take it, you, it doesn't go up or down, and that's the nature of your Buddha nature. But can it be obscured? Yes, it can. And so the practice here, and this is, again, as I get older, then I must say I find almost like a moth to a flame, a a powerful attraction to that whole vision of the path as being one of doing less, of unveiling, of removing, and removing all that that veils, that impedes, that obscures the infinite. And if it's infinite, then once it's unveiled, there is nowhere to go because it's already infinite. And from that perspective, here's the great mystery. I mean, there's many mysteries, but here's one of the great mysteries, is that from that perspective, that from that perspective of rikpa, that little tiny word is so easy, rikpa, like peanut, cherry, jelly, rikpa, just as easy to say as any other two-syllable word. It's not that hard. And in Spanish, rikpa, you know, it's got some pizzazz to it. Scottish, I think, too. A bit of rikpa. A bit of rikpa would do you really well. <laughs> Two little syllables suggesting the infinite, you know? That from that perspective, it's in the fourth time. It's not even located in time. It sees the three times simultaneously, which means from that perspective, the ground from which you first had the inclination, the thought, the inspiration to follow a path, it was already there. And then as you practice through eight weeks or eight lifetimes or 800,000 lifetimes, whatever, it's always there. And when finally the veils are lifted and you realize fully your own rikpa, your own Buddha nature, it's always there. And equally there in the ground, the path, and the fruition. And there was no change. So from this perspective, you are never unawake. From this perspective, you are never unawake. So this seems to be something universal. If you read the writings of someone who is not a Buddhist, Ramana Maharshi, who never called himself a Buddhist, as far as I know, but people would kept asking him questions, you know, what do I need to do, what do I need to do? And his answer was, nothing. You're already awake. Why don't you simply realize who you already are? I mean, paraphrasing closely, but why are you asking what to do? There's nothing to do. Realize who you already are. So there it is. 
So if one holds the vision that perhaps the path is infinite, that will just be a continual infinite un unfolding, 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 I don't see any downside to that. To think that one is simply a brain, to think that one is simply an organism controlled by the laws of physics and chemistry, I think it's very harmful. I think it's not only wrong, but I think it's really harmful. And that's why I've been so outspoken about criticizing it. Um, but there are many aspects of, of Islam and Christianity. I don't believe those either. But you see, I don't go out of my way to criticize them. Because there may be views that, oh, I don't agree with it. But if it's not really damaging humanity, then let it be. There, after all, there are multiple perspectives. You know? But this one does seem to be quite universal. There it is. So this multiple perspective, somebody asked me to tell this story, and we're kind of running out of time. It's now 10 o'clock. So I think I really probably, since it was by request. But it's a story, this whole notion of giving multiple perspectives. And the multiple perspective may be authentic, each one authentic, but quite incompatible. And then other ones are just wrong. There are views, beliefs that are just wrong. But other ones you say, well, but that's different from this. Yeah, that's true, but they are complementary, and they're not simply wrong. It's just no perspective is, is grasping the entirety, right? And so the classic analogy, and it goes back to the Buddha himself. It was a story he told, but now it's kind of worldwide. So many people know it. But it's of the blind men who come to the elephant. You probably know this story, yeah? Blind men who come to the elephant. And their, their, their task is, well, okay, tell us about an elephant. And the per first one comes over to the, and he can't see, of course. He comes over and he feels the elephant's leg and said, an elephant's like a pillar. And another one touches its side and says, no, no, not a pillar. Elephant's like a wall. A wall and a pillar are very different. Another one grabs hold of its tail and said, no, it's like a rope. And you know, you can imagine other, bar other body parts they touch, and they're totally different. But none of them is wrong, right? Well, it turned out this elephant itself was blind, as, as the story goes on. It turns out the elephant everybody's touching like that is blind. And the elephant had a, this, no, the, the, it, no it had a blind, a blind baby. It was a mother elephant, and she had a blind baby. And she said, you know, these human beings have been checking me out, and coming up with all these stories that I'm like a pillar, and I'm like a rope, and I'm like a wall, and so forth. So, and I saw them, and you know, none of them got the whole picture. So baby, why don't you, and she's speaking to her, her blind baby, and she says, why don't you go out and check out human beings? You're a blind elephant, so why don't you check out human beings and come back and report to me? You know, what are human beings like? So now we, we turn the tables on it to kind of like, it should be fair, right? So now the blind elephant is checking out human beings. And so the blind elephant, the blind baby elephant goes off and finds a human being and then comes back and reports to her mama. Uh, and mama says, what was the... <laughs> <laughs> What's a human being like? <laughs> and the baby says, what? <laughs> I've heard that many times, I still find it really funny. <laughs> Enjoy your day. See you a little bit later.